the Gerontological Society of America, Advancing Innovation in Aging. GSA on Aging. I'm Howard Degenholz, social media editor of The Gerontologist, a publication of the Gerontological Society of America. I interviewed Dr. Raina Kroc about her recent paper, The Whitest City in America, a Smaller Black Community's Experience of Gentrification, Displacement, and Aging in Place. Dr. Croft is trained as an anthropologist and is now an assistant professor of neurology in the School of Medicine at Oregon Health and Sciences University. She's based at the Latent Aging and Alzheimer's Disease Center, which supported this study under a grant from the National Institute on Aging. The success of her research really exemplifies the importance of building partnerships and coalitions with communities. The data for her study comes from the SHARP study, a partnership with the Preserve Coalition of Portland that combines oral history, photo imagery, walking, and reminiscence. As you'll hear from our conversation, the focus group participants shared personal experiences with honesty and candor that only comes when people can trust in researchers to tell their stories. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me about your paper in The Gerontologist. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So you have a paper title caught my eye, Whitest City in America, a smaller Black community's experience of gentrification, displacement, and aging in place. Raina, tell us why you got interested in this topic and why this study and how it fits in with your larger research program. Sure. Well, um, you know, first and foremost, I am a qualitative person. I am a qualitative researcher and I'm drawn to narrative and to stories and people's experiences and trying to trying to put together or synthesize many different people's experiences to arrive at a larger story and to translate that in ways to the public that they will become that they will care about it and become engaged and also in a way that I think fairly represents what it is each individual was trying to convey, but also what the community, you know, whether that be the community as a focus group or the community they were speaking to were trying to convey. I'm also a medical anthropologist. And so I look at how does culture affect health and how does health affect culture? But the work I've been doing in looking at gentrification and and my overall work, which is creating culturally celebratory brain health interventions for older Black adults in particular, that's really what I would consider dipping into neuroanthropology, which is understanding how does culture affect the brain structure, the evolution of culture, and how does the brain reflect the evolution of culture? So, you know, vice versa. And in this sense, I'm talking about really the the macro culture of America, the culture of inequity, or at least how the culture was founded on inequity and the idea that one race is superior to another. And how does how do those ideologies and cultural constructs filter down through the various levels until they get to how neighborhoods are formed and respected or thought of, how people of color are thought of and respected, and how does that affect their individual health? And in this case, I'm looking at how do these processes that really do filter from an ideology down through policy, down through neighborhood mm-hmm. changes, mm-hmm. how does that affect the brain health of older Black adults who are trying to age in place yes. in an area that is rapidly changing? And so this affects how socially engaged they are. And we know that social engagement in networks is so critical for healthy brain aging. So this paper 
is reporting on a series of focus groups. Was there another component to the larger study? Well, this was done in collaboration with Preserve Coalition for African-American Memory and Brain Health. So we had known for a long time through our community events, through being community members ourselves, you know, this mm-hmm. is my hometown community, that neighborhood change and gentrification and really living at the intersectionality of being Black and older in a majority white city, that these are all major concerns for our population. As a good qualitative study, we tried to be unbiased and open and not place our assumptions or frameworks onto other people, but had an open-ended question to see, does gentrification, do other issues arise naturally within conversation as a priority? And in this case, we just asked, what are barriers to healthier aging in Portland? And right away, we saw that neighborhood change, displacement, gentrification arose to the surface and was really dominated conversation throughout. So let's get into some of the findings. So you found, you had identified four major themes in your conversations with members of this community in Portland. The rise and fall of Black ownership, displacement, uh, race-related stress, and financial burden. Can you just give us like a real brief what do each of those things mean? Yeah, sure. So the rise and fall of Black ownership, I think it's important to note that as we were talking about what are barriers to healthy aging right now, people really concentrated on the history of barriers and and within the Black community over the course of their lifetime. Okay, so it wasn't this, just look at this present time right now, what's happening, but this is really just another event in a lifetime of experiencing discrimination. And so participants talked about the rise and fall of Black ownership, meaning how hard it was in the first place to establish a tight-knit, thriving Black community amidst a majority white city, you know, in a majority white half of the country that had racist redlining policies and practices around mortgage lending and where people could live. And so the rise of Black ownership was hard work. Right. And then as that became dismantled because people were systematically denied home loans to improve their homes and their homes succumbed to blight or as their businesses were not, it was hard to get liquor license or other licenses that they needed to maintain their businesses that started to decay the fabric of the community. So that's the rise and fall of black ownership. And it's really setting the stage that that gentrification is a years long process. Right. I thought that was very rich and. This type of academic scientific writing, you have to really boil these big concepts down and you don't have the space to do, you know, like a a five hour, you know, documentary film on the subject. But I was very impressed with the way you captured in the uh, comments and quotes from your participants, this story about the liquor licenses. I think that really... Uh, and the uh, like building permits. I think that really captures a lot of this in a very rich way. Was it was it difficult to elicit those stories, or were they right on the surface for people? They were right on the surface. I think also my own positionality as being a black woman from the community. I think that that trust building aspect was already already built in, and I also think that people were ready to talk about it and. Mm-hmm. They have been talking about it for mm-hmm. for a long time, and we were there to listen. And they that really means something to yeah. our participants. 
So the next topic was displacement. And, and as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, but this takes into account not just what's going on within these uh, neighborhoods, but also where people are being relocated to and their subjective experience in those new places, right? Right. So when we talk about displacement, it's two kinds of displacement. There's physical displacement, actually being moved physically, right, out of your neighborhood where you had felt a sense of belonging, you know, maybe for generations. And then there's the cultural displacement. And that is for those who remain in the gentrifying neighborhoods because the neighborhood is, is, um, they're experiencing cultural incongruence with the new demographic, which is usually younger, whiter, higher socioeconomic status. And then for those who are physically displaced, there's a cultural incongruence with the demographic in those areas as well. So it's sort of like either way you go, you're going to experience, um, it's like a double minoritization, right? We're already black people in a majority white city. And then to have that area of neighborhoods where we thrived and had this close knit community right? And this strong sense of belonging, to have that slowly dismantled and not really so slowly over time, um, exacerbates, yeah, completely exacerbates that feeling of displacement. You know, I saw a reference to uh, Mindy Foylove. I had the opportunity Mm -hmm. to hear her speak here in Pittsburgh, and she talked about some of her foundational work in the um, Hill District and also in uh, Homewood here in Pittsburgh, which is near where I live. And it was the displacement, but also the very rapid decline of the neighborhood after highway construction. And uh, it came through in your work, but it's also quite apparent in our city here. Yeah, there were large swaths of homes that were knocked out for freeway on and off ramps. And participants were remarking how they received pennies for their homes. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a large hospital project. Again, communities were forced Mm -hmm. to move and they were not, you know, compensated the the true worth of their homes. Yeah. Did you see the article in the New York Times? Was it last weekend? It sort of came up last week and I think it was in the Sunday Times about examples of cities that were basically eliminating highway, sections of highway and trying to restore the neighborhoods and communities. Uh, the case study that they gave was part of Rochester, New York, where they had essentially filled in the highway because uh, the highway had been sort of dug mm-hmm. into a big uh, canyon. And you see that in a lot of places. We see that in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. We see that here in Pittsburgh. And then essentially reconnected the city streets. But it was slow going in terms of knitting the fabric of the community back together. Right. And I think that's important what you say, knitting the fabric of the community back together, because a, a community, just like a neighborhood, isn't the physical location. That's certainly a part of it because that provides the close physical proximity to be able to opportunistically see neighbors and people that you know, and to also be seen and have these social interactions. But it is, it's much more than the physicality of the place. It is mm-hmm. about those relationships that people have. Mm-hmm. So race-related stress. So what is the Uh, How's that defined? So, I mean, race-related stress, of course, this is something we see across the lifespan for older Black adults. Well, I would say for any Black person, probably, but particularly for older Black adults who have lived through much in their life, right? And so with the race-related stress 
in relationship to gentrification as cultural incongruence uh, grows, as there are fewer Black people in a majority white neighborhood, um, our participants were experiencing an increase in poor service, an increase in, in service that they felt was related to the color of their skin. And financial burden. And financial burden, of course, this is huge with gentrification. This has to do with place security. And that extends not only to one's ability to afford their home, but how secure do they feel in their neighborhood? Meaning how able are they to not only afford their neighborhood, but how secure do they feel in their neighborhood in terms of belonging socially, but also knowing that they would have a network of long trusted neighbors to help them successfully age in place. So in terms of the financial burden, just looking at how much is the cost to move away, Mm -hmm. right? To sell your home and move away. But then what's the social connectivity cost? Mm -hmm. And then what is the cost of staying, Mm -hmm. you know, when you are increasingly, when you feel less and less part of this changing community, you're, you're seen less, you know, and that drives your motivation to go out and be seen is less. And so how is this also prompting isolation, whether you move away or whether you stay in place? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the financial piece, you can't ignore that when it comes to housing costs and also the intergenerational knowledge of housing and wealth building in order to safeguard oneself from devaluing their home, you mm-hmm. know, from selling it at a price that is not fair and really just understanding what one can really receive for their home. So you've talked to people who have experienced uh, gentrification, experienced displacement, experienced uh, dispossession. What are the tools? What are the what comes out of those conversations about how can we support these people in the communities where they are living, uh, help them rebuild their communities or find new new sense of community? Uh, what does that look like? What does that take? Well, I think some of the things that people mentioned were wanting to have take up more space at those tables, you know, of the of those meetings where they're talking about and formulating policies, where they're trying to understand, you know, what strategy or what approach. The older adults in this study desired to have more space at that table. They also just desired, you know, just really logistical things like having meetings at times and places that were convenient to them, yeah. you know, um, yeah. being able to contribute especially during this time of COVID, if meetings are not happening in person, you know, many older adults are not that comfortable with technology. How can we still engage them at the table in, you know, using media that they're comfortable with or in in an avenue that they feel confident in being able to communicate? So those are just very practical things, um, just getting them to the table in the first place. Other issues are moving back to a neighborhood. Okay, that sounds great, but the neighborhood again, if the churches have already left, if the affordable grocery stores have left, if those places where they connected as community barbershops and social clubs, if those things have been displaced, what is the draw to come back? And what is the draw to stay? Maybe those things aren't yet fully flourishing in the new locations and in many Mm -hmm. places they are. So it's more than just bringing back people for housing. It's looking at what kinds of businesses do we have and what are the... See, one thing I learned about in writing this paper is that businesses are really symbolic. They have this whole symbolic code of how they name themselves, how mm. they look on the exterior, 
other other cultural signals that signals who their clientele is. Oh, that's interesting. Can you give me an example about that? Yeah, let's say there is a restaurant that uses French in their title or okay. that has uh, some kind of, well, the one is just more expensive. Yes. So, you know, and again, I'm, I'm learning about how retail gentrification actually is like coded language for people looking to live in certain neighborhoods. Oh, mm-hmm. we want to live there. They have a Starbucks. Right. Um, they have a French bakery, craft breweries, dog parks, bicycle shops and bicycle lanes. They have, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever else that would appeal to upper mobile white or not even just white, but upper mobile yes. um, so- socioeconomic status individuals. And so they're seeing themselves fit into that neighborhood, but also fit into that culture. And not only the culture that that they maybe already have and are part of, but the culture they want to become a part of, right? Mm-hmm. Because they need to obtain some of those same symbols to communicate that they are part of this upper rising class, right? So I think that's really interesting. The, the retail piece is going to interweaves with and really affects people's ability to just afford to live in a place, but also their desire to feel connected and to shop at places that they see a reflection of themselves and Mm -hmm. their cultural aesthetics. So, you know, a lot of what my older, uh, our older adult participants say is they say that we know that things change. It's not the change that we're against. That's not, they, they know neighborhoods change, but it's wanting to have been a part of that change, to be seen as part of the vision for the future of that community. Right. And these were these were historically black neighborhoods, but they were not all black. They were mixed, mm-hmm. you know, and I was born in these neighborhoods. Yeah. And and I remember and I went to high school in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that they were designed d- desiring this to be exactly the way it was. But let's keep it diversified. Let's keep it. Let's make space for multiple cultures, including recognizing the culture that was there before and that is still there. So Raina, tell me about your research program and uh, what you're working on now and uh, what's next. Okay, so these focus groups help inform the SHARP study, which is a sharing history through active reminiscence and photo imagery. And it is a culturally celebratory brain health intervention for older Black adults. And we walk through these gentrified neighborhoods in North and Northeast Portland. And in triads, our older adults, they have a tablet device and they have GPS triggered historical images of the neighborhood of, of um, you know, historical figures, of everyday events like birthday parties and block parties. And people conversationally reminisce as they're walking on a predetermined, you know, one mile route in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And then this becomes an oral digital history archive. And so the byproduct is they're being socially engaged and they're getting their physical activity and we can see some improvements in cognitive function. And this includes people with mild cognitive impairment as well. But people have this driving motivation to stay engaged because at the center is celebrating the heritage of the Black community and thinking about what does our new future look like? And also at the center is this priority, preserving community history as it's being, you know, uprooted and essentially lost, not only lost because of gentrification, but because those who hold the memories and the stories of the community, of the history of the neighborhood are also growing older and experiencing yes. memory loss. So 
that's the work that I'm I'm doing now. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm trying to translate the stories from these focus groups and what was important to people into an action that can improve brain health and connectivity and really a, a way to heal from the trauma of gentrification because they're talking with other people who know exactly their sense of community loss because they've experienced it too. Okay. So Raina, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about your research. Thank you. And I especially want to thank my co-authors, Drs. Monique Hedman and Lisa Barnes. I also must thank my mentor, Linda Boyce, Mm -hmm. as well. She has passed away, but she had a remarkable influence on the trajectory of my career. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various disciplines related to gerontology, and to foster the use of gerontological research in forming public policy.